Hey guys, welcome to the show. Today I have with me a very, very special guest. It's an investor who I truly respect. Uh, his name is Serging. Uh, he was a writer from Motley Fool and you know, I've read his, he's an investment blogger himself and his views and his thoughts and his investment approach is bar none, one of the best I've ever seen out in the market here today in Singapore, right? And I, I really, really want to get his thoughts on, you know, the entire COVID situation and the entire market declines. So, you know, I'm going to dig deep into his brains. So let's find out you know, how he thinks about the whole situation and and uh, hopefully he can give you some gems and pieces of advice which can help you in your investing journey, especially right now. All right, so welcome, Serging. Thank you for doing this interview together with me. Hey, no, thanks, Fresh, for, for having me. And I, I think you're too kind um, describing like my investment philosophy and thoughts. I'm just a simple guy who wants to share about what I've known about uh, investing to, to the public. Yeah. Guys, I just want to give you some context about me and Serging, right? So, you know, so, uh, I, I I started my investing journey, I think, back quite quite some time ago. And, you know, Serging was one of the first few guys who I actually got to know as a, you know, really, really solid investor. And, you know, I since then, obviously, I've grown a lot. He's grown in his journey as well. But, you know, he is one guy who I will never forget. He said this one word to me. And when I started out, I was fresh, I was green, I was 18 years old. And he told me, Rash, uh, I don't know whether you remember this, Serging, but he told me, this, he said, Rash, you know, you look back uh, when you move forward in the next three years to five, in like three years to five years time you look back and see how powerful investing as a vehicle is right and you know he asked me to really look long term and see the fruits of my labor in the next three to five years and you know every single time i look back at my investing journey that has been so true and you know thank you for putting that perspective man you know it really really helped me and i will never forget that one sentence you said to me man that's that's so awesome. Thanks for sharing. I mean, I I, I cannot remember that, that yeah. conversation, but I'm glad that I actually said something like that. Actually, the message that you just shared is something that I always tell um people that I come across, my friends, my family, um yeah, people that I meet on the streets um or anywhere. Yeah, that's the message that I always tell them that like you know with investing we got to think long term, and then five to seven years from now when you look back, then you will actually realize how powerful concept of uh, long term investing is. Fantastic, man. Dude, okay, so tell me, man, you know, right now with mm-hmm. the entire COVID situation, uh, what are your points of view? Do you think this will lead mm-hmm. to a further decline? You know, what should investors mm-hmm. be doing to prepare? Mm-hmm. And yeah, tell me your thoughts. Yeah, so I think first it's very important to uh, note that I, I don't think anybody knows what's going to happen. Um, even like the medical experts are have, cannot come to a consensus as to how severe COVID-19 will be uh, or uh, when COVID-19 will end. I mean, some medical experts have said that high temperatures and, and the the, um, the arrival of uh, like summer months uh, in some of the affected countries would kind of like effectively kill off the disease by natural means. That's the view of some medical experts. Some have said that, you know, that's not probably not going to be the case. Um, and I've actually seen um, news articles on leaked um, like reports from top medical officials in the US um, asking their hospitals to actually prepare for very large scale like um, rates of infection and, and rates of death. So it's I, I think it's really anybody's guess as to what's going to happen to to um uh, in terms of like how COVID nineteen is going to develop and in ter- and then that in turn will actually determine how severe the the economic uh, outcomes will be. But I think if you look back at history we can see that there have also been really severe outbreaks of um, diseases that have happened in the past and Stocks have actually done really well 
um, over time. Um, like I think I can count easily more than 10 um, like severe disease outbreaks that happened over the past like 30 or 50 years. I think, you know, like today, HIV is, is, is it's a very serious disease, but it's something that people understand um, very well now. But back then, uh, when it first um, happened, there was a lot of widespread hysteria and panic over the disease as well. Um, and uh, you know, we can go back to more recent history that was SARS, there was H1N1 in 2009, you know, all these um, various things. And of course, like, you know, um, we have seen very severe uh, downturns in, in the markets over the past few weeks. Uh, but I think it's also important for investors to realize that market downturns can happen for all kinds of reasons. It can happen for economic weakness, it can happen for, you know, <laughs> really no, no, no reason at all. Like if we go back to like say, um, I've seen this, this, this really beautiful statistic from Morgan Housel, who used to write for the Mollyful, is now with this uh, venture capital firm called Collaborative Fund. Um, Morgan had an article many years ago that looked at um, the percentage of uh, uh, how frequent the S&P 500 had declined um, from peak to trial. Um, uh, going back to 1928. So from 1928 to 2013, he looked at like market statistics and realized that you know on average the market declines by 10% from top to bottom every 11 months on average. Um, there's a 20% decline once every two years or so, 30% decline um, once every five to ten years, and then a 50% decline two to three times per century. So what this shows is that, and and the amazing thing is that from 1928 to 2013. The S&P 500 in the US has actually increased by 21,000% in total, you know, um, after you include dividends and inflation. Um, and so you, you look at the frequency of uh, like severe declines in the S&P 500 over that period and yet you've seen, you know, the market actually rise by a huge amount over that time. And I think that is the most important thing that people need to realize that you know, declines happen frequently for all kinds of reasons. Uh, it's something that the, the markets do um, as to... And, and you know, like you asked me, um, what's going to happen from here, you know, is there, are there like further declines? Yeah, I mean, there's always the possibility that sharper declines can happen. There's also always the possibility that, you know, a, a sharp rebound can happen from here. The thing is, no one knows. But also importantly, I think that shouldn't, that shouldn't change at all as to um, that. Okay, I cannot speak for everyone, but that does not change how I actually invest. I've been investing for um, nearly 10 years now and my approach has always been to find um, great companies with bright long-term prospects and uh, invest in them. I look for companies with strong balance sheets, recurring revenues, strong free cash flows, um, capable management teams with integrity. And if I find them, I like them, I invest in them. And that has been my approach. Um, I, You know, um, uh, uh, just earlier today, uh, uh, a friend of mine um, commented on a Facebook post that I made and, and, and mentioned that, um, and he's a dear friend of mine, mentioned that you know today um, investors without holding power should be investing more cautiously and I completely agree but I also responded and said that you know it's always a time to invest cautiously but how do we invest cautiously right we invest cautiously by finding by buying really good quality companies uh, at, at reasonable prices and also very crucially you know we invest with capital that we do not need for like at least five years you know if we need short-term capital we are, we are put in a position where we could be forced to sell now that is one of the worst things that can happen um, to investors so um, yeah that's a very long answer to a short question <laughs> you, know, uh, you know interestingly um, you know talking about this right um, I get, let me give you an example of a stock so recently mm -hmm. one of my one of my friends, uh, uh, we had a conversation and he invested in Occidental, right? I, I'm sure you're aware of Occidental, Warren Buffett's... Uh, Occidental Petroleum? Yes, yes. yes. Okay. 
right? So he invested in Occidental Petroleum, and you know, yesterday with the entire oil price decline as well, with oil prices dropping 30%, you know, his cost has went down. As it, he bought it, his average cost was about $40, and it's gone down to what $16 or so, right? So he's like, oh shit, like you know, I didn't expect the whole decline to happen, and you know, this was sharp and huge, and he owns and it's about 20% of his portfolio, right? So he's actually asking me, like, dude, like, what should I do, right? Should I actually be keeping and just holding on to the stock and waiting however long for it to recover, right? What should my game plan be? Should I actually sell it so I can redeploy it to some better companies? Um, yeah, so what would you, what would your advice be to uh, that, that guy? No, I think first, um, the friend of yours um, should be looking at his investment thesis and determine, you know, in the first place, why had he invested in Occidental Petroleum? Uh, because if one of the key assumptions is that, you know, he or she uh, uh, is able to um, predict oil prices, then um, I think that that fundamental assumption should be relooked at. Um, I know I personally not really, um, I'm not have never really been interested in companies that are um, really linked to commodities simply because I have no idea how uh, the prices of commodities uh, will move, and and. The thing is, commodity-related companies, um, the revenues of them tend to be linked to the movements of commodity prices. And this creates an issue because if, you know, if you're unable to predict the prices of commodities, then it's really difficult for you to get a good grasp on how well or how poorly um, a particular company will do you know, if it's linked to commodity prices. So I think um, in, in, in your friend's case, you know, it's, it's really, um, does your friend have a good handle on, on um, the movement of oil prices? I, I know I don't, uh, so I've never really been interested in investing um, in oil and gas companies for many years. Um, so yeah, I think that's something your friend really uh, has, has to look at. So, you know, see this is the issue, right? With, with new investors, uh, great, like, you know, he told me that rational, no, I'm not in the oil and gas industry, I don't really know oil and gas myself. Right, so right, so if that's his answer, then would, would your advice be okay? Cool. Then in that case, move on, cut your losses, redeploy capital somewhere better, or would it be uh, maybe we'll hold on for a bit, let it recover? Like, what would you, what would you say? Um. Okay. So, like, you got to take my answer with the caveat that sure. I cannot be financial advice or investment okay. advice of any form, but. Um, what I think investors should always be doing in general is that you know if they have made a, if they have realized that they've made a, a huge mistake in their investment thesis, um, then like I think the, the, the better move would be to actually um, cut their losses and, and move on. Um, you know you don't have to make back your money in the same company. You know you can always take a lumps with um, like that Occidental has um, delivered use that capital and, and invest in another company with much better prospects. You know, I have a friend of mine um, who uh, was, I think, down like 80% or something during the financial crisis in one company, but he spotted a much better opportunity, took the money out and he made 10 times his money on that, on the, when he made the switch, right? And then so that, that 10x gain in the new company actually um, more, made up more than made up for the 80% loss in the previous company. Mm, so, beautiful. yeah, I, I think it's always important to, to you know, realize when, um, to, to cut our losses if we actually realize we've made a very big mistake in, in terms of how we actually formed our investment thesis in the first place. Yeah, dude, I think that's something that many people struggle with, right? Like, you know, there's this saying that people uh, hold on to their losses and cut their winners, right? When they have yeah, yeah, I mean, they, yeah, the phrase that I like to use uh, that, uh, is that people like to water their weeds and cut their flowers. Yeah. So like, I mean, since we brought this up, right, like a, a core tenet of my portfolio management philosophy is that I, um, if I'm forced to sell the mm. first companies I'm 
that I will be looking to sell will be companies that I define as losers and how I define them actually be companies whose businesses have not performed as well as I had um, imagined when I first invested in them. Um, so yeah, I'm always looking out to cut my, my losers and actually allow my, my winners to continue growing. I mean, one of the, the there's this like a um, slightly counterintuitive point of view. You know, when you look at any financial or, or any um, financial media, they always say that past performance is not an indicator of the future, right? But actually, I think it is actually a performance. At least it's actually a pretty solid indicator um, in the sense that because winning companies tend to have a momentum that keep on winning, right? And um, so if you actually find a company that continues to win, that has been winning, then chances are that it can continue winning. Of course, we, we can be wrong. Um, but, you know, um, when you find companies with winning this momentum, then you know, um, it's always uh, good to... Um, let them continue being in your portfolio and continue for the ride. I mean, like investors often see a company that has gone up like 5x or 10x in value and think I completely missed the boat. But you know, let's if you look at say like Amazon, which uh, my family owns, uh, you know, it's from its IPO at about I think one or something. Today it's up. Um, today it's like thousand. So it's up. I I don't know how many times I can't do the math. Mm. But you know, um, at one point in time, Amazon had to be up by next, had to be up by 20x, had to, had to be up by 30x. But, invested in it you have still done very well over the long run and the reason is because Amazon continued to win some business yeah. fantastic good can you uh, can you share with us mm-hmm. uh, some examples where you had you know you had to cut the weeds right like where you actually made mm-hmm. an investment thesis that was wrong and maybe you can share light on mm-hmm. that story so people can actually learn from experience Sure, actually funny you brought this up because I'm actually currently in the process of writing an article for my blog on describing some of my biggest losers. Um, but two, two of these biggest losers will actually be, funnily enough, oil and gas companies. One will be Edward Oceanics, which got privatized a few years ago. The other will be um, National Oil Well Varco. So I think the, the, the real mistake I made, made back then, I invested in them in 2010 and I think I sold them somewhere in 2014 or 15 somewhere along those lines. Um, and ever since then, I, they were the only oil and gas companies that I actually bought. I've, ever since then, I've never bought any other companies. Or I, in fact, I've not bought any other commodity-related companies. It goes back to the point I made earlier about the discussion we had about Aussie, right? That, you know, um, if you're investing in a company that's related to commodities, you really have to be, um, have, have a good grasp on the, the price of the commodity that is uh, backing that company's fundamentals. And I saw it when I realized that, you know, I really have no capability or ability to predict uh, the movement of oil prices. Uh, so I, I decided that like, you know, they, they were not a good uh, not good fit for my portfolio. And from a more, what do you call it, uh, slightly less monetary perspective, I actually also, so so um, the Motley Fool's co-founder, David Gardner, has a beautiful um, like, uh, phrase to describe um, how he constructs his portfolios. And, and, and he says that, you know, make your, make your portfolio um, the according to the vision you have for, for, for the future. So like in, in, in my idealized uh, worldview, like, you know, there's very little room for, for fossil fuels. Uh, fossil fuels pollute the environment um, and uh, we do need cleaner energy. So from, from that perspective as well, I decided that, you know, I didn't want to be a part of the futures of uh, oil and gas companies. And that was the reason why. So I think I'm down something like uh, uh, fifth, between 50 to 80 uh, percent on on my, on my positions with Edward Oceanics and National Oil of Tobacco. So I sold them after the price of oil collapsed uh, in in mid 2014. 
Mm, interesting, interesting. You know, I just wanted to share. Okay, so let's say uh, you know, I know one of the companies mm-hmm. you're investing in besides uh, Amazon is Mercado Libre, for example, right? Your yep. company, yep. right? So brilliant yes. company, you know, absolutely amazing. You know, so yesterday we saw prices coming down. Yesterday, Mercado's price dropped nearly twelve percent. So the thing is, you know, nothing changes the fact that it's a great business. You'll continue to grow. You know, I, I totally am with you on that. But how do you deploy your cash, man? Like, you know, what's your what's your philosophy in that? Uh, are you gonna let's say, for example, if it's jump down twelve percent? Yesterday, will you will you enter again, or will you wait for you know further declines? What's your approach? Um, so I think the approach uh, first has to be on um, okay. So in terms of capital deployment, I, I think that um, people should be adopting a portfolio level type of approach. And so it's not a matter of like just chasing prices down, but it's also a matter of like okay, how big is this company already in my portfolio? If I were to inject new capital into the portfolio and I buy of this company that's smaller will it become too heavy a portion of my portfolio so I think that's the question that everybody needs to ask the, the threshold is always different for everyone personally I wouldn't would never let a company be 20% or more of my um, portfolio um, uh, and you know like with a company like Mercado Libre it's fantastic it's, it, I think it's a phenomenal company with one of the best management teams that I've seen but even, but even so it's actually operating in um, a really tough uh, environment and that's Latin America like you know politics and the economy there um, they are not the most stable um, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of uncertainty in that area um, and so so to Mercado Libre's credit it has done really well but even then that's a, that's a risk to note right so in, in, in that case like you know we've got to think um, do I want a very large portion of my portfolio be tied to a company that is um, generating revenues in one of the most volatile regions around the world. So, so I think that's a, a, a question that people uh, have to answer. Um, it's not. It's not something that um, I don't. I don't think there's a one size uh, fit all kind of answer. So, in my case personally, I think Mercado Libre is like five or six percent of my portfolio, and I think that is a very comfortable size uh, that I have. And and so, you know, even if it drops twelve percent, I, I probably wouldn't be willing to add to it because if I were to add, add capital to it um, no, and it grows to like 7 or 8% then, um, then I don't think that makes a lot of sense but that's it right like if, if Mercado Libre is actually growing uh, its business as in, as in its weightage in my portfolio increases because the share price has risen then that's a different story so um, yeah I wouldn't want to deploy capital on the companies and, and push up their weightage in my portfolio to a level that I'm not comfortable with but if you know if the share price has actually risen over a long period of time and allowed company and made that company a much heavier weight in my portfolio then I'll be comfortable with that because then that's proof you know that um, the company's uh, heavy weight in my portfolio is a matter of um, underlying business growth and this is also like related to the point I made earlier about watering our flowers and cutting our weeds. Mm, interesting, interesting. And so, so again, if I got you correctly, mm-hmm. you basically said that 20%, mm-hmm. that's the max you will go with any one given position at any part of time, yeah? So that's yes, yes, that's, uh, but that, yeah, but that's, that's just me, right? And, and everyone has a different portfolio um, allo- uh, allocation, like, um, so, um, yeah. So if you don't, dude, if you don't mind sharing, right? So <laughs> with regards to portfolio management, with regards to how you do it, again, like I, like we have already clarified, different investors do it in different ways, but what's your approach, man? You know, how many companies do you generate in your portfolio? What do you think is a, a size which you are comfortable with in terms of monitoring, in terms of understanding? Yeah, how many do you actually have in your portfolio? You know, this is also a really interesting um, discussion because uh, like, you know, there are some investors like Charlie Munger, for example, yeah. who swears by, you know, concentrating his, I think Charlie Munger's personal portfolio is like 
one third in Costco, one third in Berkshire, and one third in uh, this uh, Himalaya Capital, which is this uh, investment fund run by Lilu, and it's uh, investing mostly in I think Chinese and, and Korean equities. Um, so yeah, that's a, like a super concentrated um, portfolio. But on the other hand, you know you have like Peter Lynch who, who did tremendously. And I, I, I think when Peter Lynch retired, he had like 1,400 stocks in his yep. portfolio. So, you know, you have this huge disparity there. And, and then, you know, in the middle, you have like Walter Schloss, who who, is, who, um, who passed away a few years ago. And, and Schloss was a good friend of uh, Warren Buffett. I was also an employee of Benjamin Graham, just like Warren Buffett. Um, and, and when Schloss was running his own fund for like 40 years, um, 40 over years, he, he always held like, I think like 100 to 200 stocks at any point in time. So, you know, there's this really wide range of... Um, different opinions about, you know, what's the right level of, uh, you know, should people be concentrated or should people be diversified? Um, I think in, in, there are investors that have done very well with either approaches. So again, it really boils down to like the individual, what kind of investor he or she is. You know, is she comfortable with like having a very concentrated portfolio or, or is he or she, you know, comfortable with a like, more diversified one? Personally, um, my my family's portfolio, the one that I've run, um, has about more than 50 companies um, in, in it. It's all in the US. Um, but I think the top 10 stocks make up maybe something like 40% or 50% of the, of the portfolio. So, you know, it's, con- it's diversified by name, but concentrated in, uh, in, in terms of weightage. Yeah, so again, you know, no one size fit all answer, but that's just my personal opinion. Interesting, interesting. Dude, you know, uh, Sergei, over the years, I'm sure mm. you've diversified as an investor yourself. You know, I've, re- I've read your articles like religiously over the years. Like, I think you've published like thousands of articles. So, you know, I'm very I'm quite familiar with the companies they've invested in, companies that you've kind of lost money in, made money from, made plenty of money from. So, um, you know, um, let me just bring up one from memory. So, you mentioned like last time you made a mistake uh, in like Dolby. Remember Dolby? Right. Dolby Laboratory right. yep. Dolby right so the, yeah Dolby for example so you know with regards to your own investing approach do you generally prefer going for companies like uh, Amazon and Mercados or do you prefer like uh, Dolby which is you know Dolby or Edward which is more of a small cap mid cap so how has your investing approach evolved as you've actually matured as an investor and would you shed some light on that um, I, so I had so I actually started investing. In, I started learning about investing when I was maybe uh, seventeen or eighteen years old. Yeah. Um, that was when I, I, I and I uh, first came across investing through Philip Fisher's book. Uh, that would be Common and Uncommon Profits. Mm. Uh, that, that that really you know that book. I, I, every most of the ideas that Fisher doing and I find really logical. So that has really been sort of like the, the um. A very strong um, influence in terms of how I uh, have been thinking about investing from like the very first day that I knew about the stock market and investing. So I've always adopted a very business uh, focused uh, approach to investing. Um, but what I've changed over the years is that I have learned to appreciate a lot more about quality of management. Um, one interesting evolution in the way I think about investing is that, you know, so there, um, a lot of investors can talk about competitive advantages and then they list down, um, like um, I think Dorsey, from, who used to be at Morningstar, now is an asset management firm, he wrote this really good book um, about competitive advantages and it on a few like what network effects, um, um, pricing power, um, and, and a few ideas that I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, but they were all, you know, like they were big things that you could kind of 
um, look out for in the company and then you could classify. But I think, all, but over the years, I think ultimately what I've realized is that all of these competitive advantages that you can identify in a company, they all stem from um, management. And so I, and now I see management as like the ultimate source of competitive advantage because a company's current competitive advantage are comes from actions that management has done in the past and a company's future competitive advantage will be um, a result of what management is doing today. So I, 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 I spend a lot of time just um, thinking about a uh, company's management team um, a lot more than I uh, used to in the past. Uh, I think about how they have grown the business, how they view the business, how they view competition um, and how they have executed. Uh, how are they incentivized? So these are things that I, I look at a lot with uh, management teams. Uh, and, and if uh, you read, uh, if I've uh, actually looked at my blog, um, when I discuss actual companies that I own in my family's portfolio, uh, you'll notice that I think the long, by far the, the, the longest um, pieces of, uh, I mean the longest discussion in that article would actually be on the company's management team because that's where I spend a lot of time um, thinking about and, and finding information on. So I think that has been like the, the a very big shift. Now you also pointed out that, you know, like, do I like to look for like small caps and meat caps, right? So um, my my approach is that I'm actually market cap agnostic. I don't really care what the size of the company is. It's more important that a company is able to um, excel against the few criteria that are looking this is something that I mentioned and uh, there are six things that I tend to look out for in a company so very quickly, right? First is that I want companies that have uh, that are operating in large and all-growing markets. So basically, the company must be operating in a field that's able to grow uh, over the long run. Um, I want strong balance sheets. Uh, you know, uh, typically, I want uh, more cash than debt. If there's debt, then I want strong recurring free cash flows that um, can sort of outweigh the debt. Third, I want management teams with integrity, capability, and ability to innovate. Uh, the fourth thing is I look out for is uh, I want companies with high levels of recurring revenues, either through customer behavior or contracts. Uh, and then uh, I also want uh, companies with a proven track record of growth. And then lastly, I want companies whose business model excuse me, makes me think that they are able to um, generate a strong free cash flow in the future. So. As long as a company can actually meet these characteristics, I'm happy to, to, to invest in them, uh, regardless of the size. Hmm, interesting, interesting. Dude, thanks for sharing that, man. And you know, um, okay, okay. So I, I get it, right? Yeah, I get how you mm-hmm. how you see the entire thing. But you know, I have this one mm-hmm. nagging question in my head. You know, when you talk about management team, right? Like, mm-hmm. how does a beginning investor kind of assess management team? What are some quick few tips you can give them with regards to assessing management because that's something that you know we kind of don't have access to right as a retail investor so how, how do you do that yourself um okay so in th- let's talk about access to, to management teams first right so i think um um if you're talking about say companies that are listed in asia in general then i think yes it's true that you know um, most individual investors cannot really gain access uh, to them but for these in some of the more the larger exchanges around the world, then I think access isn't really a problem because, um, like especially if you're talking about US listed companies, you know they have a lot of like investor presentations, they have um, transcripts of like their earnings calls, they have uh, they do a lot of interviews in, in, in television as well as in print form. So there's a lot of information that we can actually um, find out about a company's management team without actually having to meet them. So if you're talking about like companies that are listed in um, large exchanges like in the US, right? So um, that's the um, um, what I have to say about access. But also in, in terms of like being able to um, 
like sort of uh, um, evaluate different teams. I think uh, it's really so. So there are two sides to it, right? There's like the there's like the quantitative um, side, and then there's also the qualitative side. So the quantitative side, I think it's a uh, um, you don't really need like experience or, or there's no real in it. Um, but you know you can look for things, a few things that I tend to look out for. First, how is management incentivized if the information is available? So like a lot of companies in the US, um, they file this thing called a proxy form or DEF14A. This form um, tells you um, how the management team is incentivized. Um, like they share some of the key the the, the key performance matrix that a, that the management team eat before they are paid. So you know you look out for things that you look out for performance matrix that makes sense to you shareholder. Like you know if a management team is compensated based on just revenue growth, I'll be worried because you know you can very easily boost revenue growth but make a huge mess of the company's um, profits and goes and balance sheet, right? But you know if a company is compensated based on say free cash flow per share, um, or like earnings per share. Or book value per share, then that gives or that gives me a lot more um, confidence in terms of like uh, the integrity of the management team. Then we can we can also look at say the absolute amount of compensation the management team has actually earned over time compared to the business performance. You know, um, um, the has the compensation actually increased together with the business performance, or has compensation actually increased while business performance declining? You know, if, if the case of presentation rising or performance is declining, then that is really bad because then it's a, to me, it's a yellow flag because I see that as a sign that, you know, this is a management team that doesn't really, um, it's not actually treating shareholders. Right. And then another quantitative thing we can look at is like related party transactions. So related party transactions are transactions that a listed company makes with companies or entities that are linked to its management team. So I think a, um, an example that I mentioned in my blog is actually Haiti Lao, right? So it's a company that I think most people in Singapore will be familiar with. You know, Haiti Lao is the, the operator of this very popular hot pot restaurant. Mm. Um, in 2018, I think uh, four out of Haiti Lao's top five suppliers actually were controlled by Haiti Lao's management. And um, of these top five suppliers, uh, I think they accounted for something like 30% or more of the total um, like cost of goods sold. Um, that Haiti Lao um, paid for in, in during the year. So, you know, with such high levels of related party transactions, there's always the opportunity or chance that Haiti Lao's uh, management engages with the company shareholders. But if we look back um, in terms of, uh, like, if you look at Haiti Lao's profit margins, you realize that they're actually pretty healthy for a restaurant operator. They're somewhere around like 9 or 10% going back to like 2016. Um, so, you know, when you look at that, then you think that, mm, Maybe uh, even though there's uh, even though the optics don't really look too good, but if you dig deeper, then you realize that actually things look fine. So um, these are the quantitative things that I look at. Like in terms of the qualitative things, then you know this is very, uh, this is very subjective. This is where a lot of um, judgment will come into play. Um, and unfortunately, I don't have a silver bullet to fix this uh, judgment issue. Um, but what I can share in terms of like how I some of the things interesting things that I look out for, right? So. Like um, I mentioned earlier about, you know, I like to look at how management thinks about competition. So let's talk about Netflix, which is um, a company that I've owned for many years and it has done really well for my family's portfolio. So, you know, Raj, if I were to ask you, like, um, if you were to think of uh, competition for Netflix, right, what comes in, um, what pops up in your head? Disney Plus. Disney Plus, um, Apple TV, Amazon Prime, other streaming services, am I right? Yeah. Right. So that would be the first like thing you think about when you think about competition on Netflix. 
But actually, management views competition very differently. Mm. So basically, right, any time that an individual is um is Yep. So, um, you know, with regards to to Netflix, I think one of the really interesting things that about what management has said in the past is that you know, every any time that an individual is spent not watching Netflix, that is competition. So, like you know, if you're exercising, if you're reading a book, if you're playing music, if you're listening to music, you know, if you're going for a walk, anything that is competition, right? And I think that you know, having this really interesting, correct, um, wide view of competition, um. Says a lot about I think the quality of the management team because having this kind of view actually, I think in my opinion, lessens the risk that Netflix can be blindsided by competition because it's so um it's able to you know really just um have a very wide view of competition and 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 when you have a very wide view of competition then you tend to build your business in a way that can actually fend off all of these competitive forces right. Mm-hmm. That's just uh, one like qualitative example. Um, two more, right? Um, one, I think, would be like if you look at Costco, which I sadly don't own shares of. I, I I've looked at the company for many years ago, and it's a company that I admire a lot. Um, and and I just mentioned right that Charlie Munger owns a big chunk in Costco. So Costco is famous for actually, um, you know, marking up the. So okay, Costco is actually a, a warehouse retailer. So it's kind of like NTUC or or like a a, a supermarket or something. But instead of uh, it runs its stores in huge warehouses, and to enter the its stores, you actually have to purchase a membership. And interestingly, Costco actually earns most of its profits and cash flows from these membership fees, and um, it actually marks up the cost of goods right by a very slim margin of between thirteen to fifteen percent. Um, and so, what happens? The goods that Costco sells in its warehouse stores, uh, the extra markup just there to pay for these salaries and and interest expenses and some of the other operational stuff. And at the bottom line, if you're talking about just selling the goods alone, it's like nearly zero. And then its profits really just come from um, the membership fees that, that uh, members pay. Now, what's really interesting is that Costco is adamant about sticking to this markup of thirteen percent. And and there was this story, amazing story. Like there was once a um a Costco purchasing manager was actually um you know it was working with a supplier and managed to bring down the price of of a product say from twenty dollars to ten dollars. So like this supplier could actually manufacture the same product using ten dollars instead of twenty dollars in the past with the help of the Costco manager. Now I think, and when that was achieved, right? You know what was amazing? So, at a twenty dollars cost price, um, Costco could be selling the product for, um, let's say, at a fifteen percent. Then that would be something like um, twenty twenty five dollars. Yeah. Right. So, but instead of keeping the selling price at twenty five, Costco its selling price to like eleven or twelve dollars in, in keeping with its uh, traditional markup. And the reason it was doing so is because it, Costco always wants to pass on cost savings to its investors. Now that seems like a very simple thing to do, right? Like you know, we can we can just tell uh, Walmart or or UC or whatever, hey, just mark up your cost, just mark up your goods by like thirteen to fifteen percent. But but seemingly simple thing actually goes directly against hum- human um, greed, right? We are all greedy in certain ways, and this what Costco is doing actually goes directly against that. But what it also creates is this really strong advantage, and and. Um, Costco has actually stuck to its principle of uh, marking up its goods by very low margin um, for, 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 for many, many years and I uh, hope that it will continue doing so. The second example. The third example is like um, Amazon. Uh, much like Costco, Amazon has a really laser-like focus on, on, on um, 
serving its customers well. Um, like an example, right, like in 2003 or 2005, um, Bezos actually introduced a, 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 um, a feature in Amazon where it would actually remind customers that you've actually purchased this product just a few weeks ago. Are you sure you want to do it again? So, you know, from a, from, from, from most of that, for most of us, like if a customer buy like a CD that he has purchased a few weeks ago, we'd be like, I mean, you know, what's the harm, you know, uh, we get to earn more money and remember so like let's let him do it but in Jeff Bezos view that you know this is bad for customer experience and for us to remind the customers that is great customer experience and so he went ahead with that and again you know that is that is something that is not usual most companies wouldn't do it and so um I think that is like uh this are uh, like three good examples of like the qualitative things that I look out for in management teams I don't really have like a very um like clear or well thought out articulation of, of uh, what I look out for in terms of evaluating management but I hope like the examples I've shared will be able to give people a better sense of how I, I, I look at things. Dude, okay, so now uh, thank you for sharing them and you know, gave me a lot of insight into what to look at, you know, and um, searching, so I have uh, two main questions before we wrap up the interview and the first question I want to ask is this, right? Um, okay, coming back to the whole COVID-19 situation, um, what companies do you think will be possibly a lot, like very, very much affected, but definitely a huge project, like trajectory to grow and you know, what, what possibly would you be on the lookout for? So, um, yeah, interesting that you brought up because uh, there was, I, I published an article recently on my blog about um, uh, this company called Booking Holdings, which uh, my family owns shares of. Um, Booking Holdings is a online travel agent, the world's largest online travel agent. So naturally, you know, with COVID-19, there are fears that, um, or rather, uh, people have basically stopped traveling. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of uh, traveling plans that have been shelved or, 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 um, or, or, or cancelled. And this definitely has affected booking holdings. Uh, but I think, you know, if you look over the long run, um, as the world becomes more affluent, as the middle class uh, rises in, in numbers, there'll be more and more people uh, wanting to travel and fly. And I think this is a very strong tailwind for booking holdings. But not only that, right? You know, you're talking about the world's largest online travel agent. So um, it already has a very strong um, foothold in the online travel space. And online travel today, I think, is about one third of like the total travel market. So there's again, in terms of like online travel itself, there's still room to grow. Um, so I think there are like two strong tailwinds uh, for, for booking holdings, even though it's actually facing some, um, some very strong short term. Um, headwinds. Okay, okay. So booking holdings one of them. Okay, that's great. That's great. So mm-hmm. out of all of them, you chose the one with the strongest mode, I see. So yeah, fantastic example. I love it. Right, booking holdings. And one more thing, right? So next question is this. Mm-hmm. Let's say for example, right? Again, you know, who's to know what's going to happen? But you know, in my personal point of view, um, just this is just my personal point of view. Even with the, even with the recent um, correction and the market being sold off quite a bit, I, I don't see valuations being extremely attractive as of yet, right? Uh, it's not exactly, uh, oh my goodness, dirt cheap. Right? So, you know, I think the S&P 500, the P ratio of the entire S&P is still about 18 or 19 or something along those lines. And um, so let's just say, you know, this turns out to be something of an 08 crisis, right? Um, again, this is in the hypothetical world. Let's assume everything is, at avail- is available at a 50% discount. And you have limited capital and you put it in only three companies. Which three would be your picks? Um... I, I will never build a uh, portfolio with just three picks. <laughs> I know, I know. But if, if you were yeah, to yeah. just pick... Yeah, yeah. If I were to answer like your 
hypothetical question. I yes. think one company would definitely be Berkshire Hathaway. Okay, um, fantastic. Through, through, yeah, through Berkshire, you know, you gain instant diversification and you also gain the services for nearly uh, uh, of uh, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger mm. at um, very little cost. Buffett's mm. salary is $100,000 a year. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Berkshire Hathaway definitely um, you want such company uh, and you know if I would and well and the other two would be really difficult um, of the, I think Amazon is probably a strong contender um, and then if I were to and so now you have like two really like solid companies that are generating lots of free cash flow with very good track records of growth good management teams and still have like long runways for growth right so I think like the next one of perhaps be like a, a smaller company that's, that has the potential to like, I don't know, like 10x mm. or, or, or something. So I'll probably be looking at some smaller um, software service companies. Uh, I, it's, I can't really pinpoint uh, which one they would, but some of the, the ones that I've been keeping, keeping an eye on would be like um, Okta, DocuSign, uh, Shopify, uh, Twilio, Optorix, MongoDB. So, so quite a number of these. Uh, they all serve different um, end markets. All have uh, different users. Uh, um, and yeah, maybe could even throw in some really speculative one like Garden Health, uh, which does liquid biopsies. So biopsies are a um, it's a medical procedure of um, identifying the type of types of cancer that's uh, in a patient's body. So traditional biopsies are actually actual surgeries where uh, doctors have to um, reach into a body and, and extract cancer tissue. Uh, that's traditional biopsies. Liquid biopsies would actually be biopsies that are done through like your blood or some other bodily fluid. And through that, you can actually see um, or detect what types of cancer you have and that can help in terms of like uh, finding the, the, the proper uh, course of treatment. Um, so, oh, can you give me a minute? Sure, for sure. Hey guys, I think, the, yeah, let's resume. Uh, yeah, so, um, yeah, so, so Garden Health makes this liquid biopsies and I think that, you know, it has a very uh, interesting uh, technology that could potentially uh, go on to 10x or 20x, uh, but it's super, super risky and yeah, speculative. And I'm not even sure if I'll be investing in it myself. But like since you mentioned, you know, three companies, and I already have mentioned two like really solid ones. So maybe you know, if you can, you, you have the support the uh, the strong foundation. So maybe you can just on one that's like speculative. <laughs> okay, 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 cool. You know, you know the surgery to share with you. You know, the reason why mm-hmm. I, I asked the question was because you know, in my personal point of view, I. Sometimes I, I like this approach of being like laser focused, right? Like, hey, um, mm-hmm. if I if I only to have like seven bullets, right, to actually like shoot, like what would I really really shoot at? You know, it's, it comes down to Warren Buffett's philosophy of, hey, you know, you don't have to shoot at every, you know, you don't have to swing at every single pitch, right? You know, you swing at the ones which are like you know really 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 solid ones, and you get take a blow, then you take a huge one, right? So you know, I like to think um, of investing in that way as well. So I you know, I'm very very selective in my choices. Like hey, if it doesn't pass, let me throw it away. Let me throw it aside and really keep that laser focus. So it's interesting to hear what you have to say as well. So two really solid ones, and maybe one which is which could potentially 10x, but you know who knows, right? Yep. Okay, dude. Anyways, thanks for sharing. And Sergey, could you just tell us about where uh, our my followers, my all my friends can actually find your readings? Uh, your your stuff. Could you actually share about that a bit? Yeah, so I'm um I'm 
currently running this investment blog called The Investors. So our um, URL will be thegoodinvestors.sg. It's an investment blog that I run together with Jeremy Chia. It's a very much a passion project for the both of us. Uh, like our main this focus actually at the moment is to build an investment fund. Uh, we are looking at building an investment fund that um, the, with, with the key objectives of actually growing the wealth of Singapore investors and also enriching society. So uh, that's our main like so-called commercial focus uh, and, and the blog is really just a passion project. Jeremy and I believe deeply in investor education. Um, so we are constantly publishing our thoughts and, uh, and views about investing uh, on the blog. Uh, you know, we have no intention of uh, hiding anything or, or, or monetizing anything. It's really a free personal investing block to, to share uh, our unvarnished views on, on the markets. So yeah, you just uh, feel free to, to check out the blog and um, subscribe for updates. Dude, I just uh, just to wrap it up, I, I just want to say that Surging is really one of the best guys out there with regards to publishing stuff. He's been doing it for years. I don't think there's anybody else in Singapore who's published as much stuff as him. I, I really don't know. Dude, like, I have no idea. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong, but I've never seen anybody else who's published such good stuff. Like, you know, I've loved reading all that he has published over the years. It's absolutely a gem. Do yourself a favor, make sure you head down to good investors, check out everything he's written, follow his, you know, follow his stuff. Go and read his book as well. I know he's written the book Investla. Amazing group, an amazing book, you know, with some other amazing investors as well. Anyway, Serging, thank you very much for being on the interview. I myself learned so much. I am sure my guys learned a lot as well. And uh, thank you for your views, man. Really, really appreciate this. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a, it's a, it's a real pleasure. Uh, I, I love talking about this. So thanks again for having me. Awesome, man. Thank you. Thank you.